On All Hallows' Eve, or Halloween, 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church, and the world has never been the same since. During these next four weeks, we're going to be talking about the impact of the Reformation on our lives. And to do this, we're going to walk through a journey of these scriptures and also these concepts of faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, and Christ alone. We're going to be looking at these highlights of Luther's moments. And so if you're someone who loved history in high school, you're going to love this series. If you loved math, you're going to love the next series. <laughs> in order for us to be able to understand what happened in that seminal moment when the young monk nailed the 95 theses to the door in the Wittenberg church, we're going to have to do a little bit of backstory. We're going to have to do the prequel. And so Luther's journey did not begin with that moment standing on the doorsteps of the church. Luther's journey began when he and his family, his small children, moved to the town of Mansfield. They moved from the smaller village where they were because Mansfield was kind of an up-and-coming town. It was an enterprising town. His father was getting engaged in the copper mining industry. Here is an image of Luther's parents. Hans and Margaret, don't they look like the life of the party? <laughs> don't they just look like a barrel of monkeys and a whole lot of fun, the kind of people you would just love to hang out with and have a cup of coffee with? But really, the, their images capture kind of what the time was like, that it was a stern, it was a serious, it was a superstitious time. The infant mortality rate was in the 60% level. There were lots of plagues and famines. Life was hard. And so today as we dive into Luther's life and some of the scriptures that impacted the Reformation, today I want to talk about a storm. I want to talk about a long walk. And I also want to talk about a breakthrough. So first, let's talk about the storm. Luther was the firstborn, and so lots of expectations heaped on them in terms of who he was going to be when he grew up and kind of the fortunes of the family, the blessing of the future. Here is an image of the school in Erfurt that Luther attended, the university. This is where he was studying in order to become a successful lawyer. His father was very proud. Luther was an incredibly diligent and capable thinker and student. One day when Luther was traveling back and forth between his hometown and that of the university town in which he lived, he was caught in a horrible storm along the road. Here's an image, actually, of that very same road, somewhere near where Luther would have been at that moment when somebody captured an image of what a storm might have looked like in that time and day. Luther was absolutely terrified. He feared for his life, and he cried out, Dear Saint Anne. Now, Saint Anne is the mother of the mother of Jesus. Well, later, in another message, we're going to talk about uh, that the fact that they prayed uh, to God through saints. So we'll get to that later. But he cries out, Dear Saint Anne, save me and I will become a monk. Well, Luther was saved from that storm that day. And when Luther did so, he took his vow, his loyalty quite seriously. 
And so he immediately enrolled in the monastery, much to the consternation of his parents, especially his father. But one of the things that didn't change for Luther is just as much as Luther was a devoted student in his university studies, now he became a devoted student in the monastery. The other thing that didn't change for Luther was that the anxiety, the angst, the dread, and the fear that he had had along the side of the road, ironically, even in his bargaining with God, that didn't dissipate either. Here is an image of the church of the monastery where Luther was, and that little concrete piece in front of the altar is the very place where Luther often spent many an hour of prayer on his knees, face down before God, oftentimes begging for forgiveness. People believed back then that if you had unconfessed sin, that you would go to purgatory, a fact that we'll return to at a later date. And so Luther's dread and anxiety just continued. In fact, here's an image of the church where Luther actually celebrated his first mass, his first communion as a priest. He was so terrified that he would do something wrong and that God would smite him that he barely could get through the right all on his own. In fact, if somebody had not been next to him helping him, he said he would have run out of the building. And so Luther, as he continued in his diligent pursuit as a monk, had an authority figure in his life, a spiritual director, if you will. And not only was he kind of the person who was in charge of Luther and his direction, he was also the person who would hear Luther's confession. And let's just say that Luther had the spiritual gift of confessing and that he could confess for hours upon hours upon hours, and that Luther would confess, and that oftentimes he would leave and then realize that he had left some stuff out, and so he would go back to Staupitz, his spiritual director, and confess some more. And we know that Staupitz was just annoyed by how much Luther wanted to confess, that he wanted Luther to, to cut it out a little bit. And so we don't know to what degree this motivated Staupitz to do this, but Staupitz sent Luther on a long journey to the city of Rome. And so he sent Luther on a pilgrimage. You need to realize in that day and age, as someone who had taken a vow of poverty that he could only walk by foot in order to do this, here is the Google image of where he was going. This is a thousand or more miles by foot. It would take 26 hours for him to do this. It would take roughly two weeks of walking time for Luther to be able to get this. And I love the little warning sign that it says there. You probably can't read it. It said, this route crosses through Austria. In other words, he's going to have to cross the Alps. Imagine taking that journey and making all of those steps in order to go to the city that you've always longed to see. But when Luther got to Rome, his enthusiasm turned into disenchantment, for he saw the commercialization of the faith. He saw the corruption of the religious leaders, and he saw the carnal desires that weren't even hidden in the ways that people violated their vows of poverty and chastity and obedience. The critical moment for Luther when he was in Rome uh, started when other priests were making fun of him for how long it would take him to say the Mass, 
For the other priests, the Italian priests, it was all about how many masses could you say in such a short period of time because you got paid by the mass. I get paid by the word, not the mass. And, um, and so they would try to say it as fast as possible, and they actually poked fun at Luther for him trying to say the mass with the careful devotion the way that he said the prayers. The other moment for Luther that was horrible was he went to go do one of the great pilgrimage sites, a place where they had allegedly taken stones from the Holy Land of the stones of Caiaphas's house and taken them to Rome. And uh, you could pay money in advance and you could climb the steps on your knees. And in doing so, you would say an article of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, as you made your way up the steps. And then by the time you got to the top, whoever you did this on behalf of them, Luther did this on behalf of his uncle, um, that you could help to spring them from purgatory for a certain amount of time. And Luther climbed to the steps, supposedly the steps that Jesus himself had walked. And then he got to the top and wondered out loud, what if it's not true? And with that, he made the long journey home. Eventually, Luther took on a teaching post where he was teaching the Bible. And what was unusual about Luther teaching the Bible is that they didn't have dedicated Bible teachers back in that day and age. And so first, Luther started teaching on the book of Psalms, and then Luther started teaching on the book of Romans. And it was in the first chapter of the book of Romans where Luther had his incredible breakthrough. He was reading these words, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Luther dreaded the phrase, the righteousness of God, because in Luther's mind, the righteousness of God meant the process by which God punishes us. This is what Luther believed when he was a child. From early childhood, I was accustomed to turn pale and tremble whenever I heard the name of Christ mentioned, for I was taught to look upon him as a stern and wrathful judge. In other words, Luther believed in a form of the shame and blame gospel. This is what had been taught to him. And the way that James Bryan Smith describes it is this, you are bad, God is mad, but Jesus took your beating, so try harder and you just might make it to heaven. This was the ethos on which the faith was lived out. And so Luther's great breakthrough or revolutionary moment was that the phrase, the righteousness of God, did not refer to as the process by which God punishes us. When you actually read the book of Romans, what you come to understand is that it's good news and that the righteousness of God is the process by which he makes us right with him, that he restores us, that he saves us. And so if you don't hear anything else, hear this. This is Luther's breakthrough, that salvation is not a prize to be won. It is a gift to be accepted, to be received. Here is the way that Luther described it for himself. 
At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context to the words, namely, and the righteousness of God is revealed. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteousness lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness. And what he means by passive is that God's the one who's active. God's the one who does the work. All we're doing is receiving. The passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Thus, a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. And I I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. Thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. Luther felt like he had been born again, that he had entered into heaven because he had come to the realization that God was for us and not against us. The way that Luther describes this and the reformers would develop this is they would talk about the doctrine of justification, the doctrine by which we are made just as if we had never sinned before. And the watchword phrase was that we are saved by grace through faith. Now, what is faith? For faith, Luther said it was trust. It's confidence. It's trusting in who God is. Luther's most famous analogy of trust is that of a wedding ring. And he says that you don't trust your marriage to the wedding ring. You trust the one who gave you the wedding ring. You trust the promise. And he was arguing that basically what the religion and the Christianity of medieval Europe had devolved into was that we were trusting the ring itself instead of the one who promised the ring and who gave the ring to us. This is the nature of how we can trust in God and in His promises. Now, many of us, as we hear all of this history, immediately write off someone like Martin Luther with what C.S. Lewis refers to as chronological snobbery, to be able to say, you know, we're, we're kind of past that. So Luther was kind of neurotic and anxious and depressed, and we're kind of past all that, right? Because we have no anxiety and depression and neurosis in our world today. We're kind of past all that, so we don't need that. We're, we're not trying to justify ourselves before God anymore. Well, I was getting ready to go to seminary, Um, I was a business major and not a religion major. So I'd only taken a couple of Bible classes. Um, I had had one history class. And so I knew that I was going to be a little bit behind in going to seminary. And my dad did as well. And so for Christmas one year, he gave me uh, a book. And this is the year before I'm going to seminary. He gave me a Christmas present, a book called Christian Doctrine. How many of you have given your kids a book called Christian Doctrine for their Christmas present? Just my family? Okay. And uh, so I got this book, and honestly, I started reading it because I didn't want to be too far behind. I felt like I ought to read some theology before I actually go to seminary. But what I was not prepared for was that this wasn't going to be some dry academic pursuit. 
but that what I would even read in a theology textbook would totally change my life. Here's what I read. Most of us do not try to justify ourselves as young Martin Luther did, but we have other ways of doing the very same thing with the very same results. Many of us Americans try to justify ourselves not so much by good works, but by just plain work. Hard work and success make us feel like we're worth something and can win for ourselves the approval and admiration of other people. So we work harder and harder and we work longer and longer, feeling guilty whenever we stop to rest or to play. But the very work that was supposed to give our lives meaning becomes a cruel slave driver that turns them into a treadmill. Depending on what is important to us and what is possible for us, all of us spend all of our lives trying to justify ourselves in one way or another. But whatever the means, the result is always the same. We are either too proud or too despairing of our own worth. Our lives are driven and anxious and guilty. And no matter how hard we try, we cannot save ourselves or buy the respect and love and acceptance of others that we crave. Robert McAfee Brown puts it this way. The gospel does not say, trust God and he will love you. The gospel says, God already loves you, so trust him. Faith is not a work that saves us. It is our acknowledgement that we are saved. We are not made right with God by our faith, but we are made right with God through our faith. Our faith does not change God from being against us to being for us, but it does change us from being closed to being open to receive the love that God already has for us. Do you see it? Do you see that you and I are on the same treadmill that Luther was on? And so maybe, maybe like Luther, you've worked your whole life. You've worked your whole life to please others. You've worked your whole life to climb the ladder, the ladder of success, to, to educate yourself, to learn, to grow, to succeed. Maybe like Luther, you're afraid secretly inside. Maybe you're trying to, like Luther, bargain with God. And you secretly wonder inside, is God any good? Maybe you've walked long paths. Maybe you have climbed high steps and mountains. And you've wondered, what if it's not true? Well, I want you to hear from me on behalf of Martin Luther that the shame and the blame gospel is not true. Do not settle for a cheap substitute, a warped version of the righteousness of God. God loves you. He's not out to get you. He's not out to punish you but we have to get off of that treadmill of trying to justify ourselves because the only way you can tap into the grace that's been given to you is to receive it as a gift. The only way to do that is to trust. We trust in our Heavenly Father we trust in the wedding band of his promise. 
Maybe you've come today, and in coming today, you've been walking that journey for a long time. And maybe you're looking for that sense of worth and peace. Martin Luther had his breakthrough moment. Maybe what God wants to do 500 years later is to give you that breakthrough moment for you to be able to receive for yourself the gift that God alone can bring. And before I lead us in a word of prayer, I want you to let you know that the little girl Mary was found. So let's pray. Thank you, God, for all of your good promises. Thank you that we can trust and rely on you. Lord, so often we're trying to rely on our own strength, our own might, our own power. And Lord, I imagine that there's many people here who have learned, have received a shame and blame version of the gospel. And Lord, we don't trust you because we don't really think you're good. And so I pray that you will help us to have those breakthrough moments, that you will enable us to be able to receive what you alone can give. Take away our fears. Remove our anxiety. Help us to slow down and to trust you and your righteousness. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.